Hello and welcome to Fair Game with Ferris, a podcast where all sports are fair game. I'm your host, Ferris Bader, and today we're talking about the Olympics again. Alright everyone, today we're going to be talking some more about the Olympics and I have with me a good friend of mine from high school. His name is John Price. John did cross country in high school along with a load of other things. John, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you could be here and you know, I'm excited. Let's talk about some Olympic soccer. First of all, I want to get started on the men's side of things. There's a lot of action going on there and Maybe let's kind of go over the group stage. And since the knockout stage, the quarterfinals starts tonight, we'll end with a little bit of predictions, talk about what to look forward. But first and foremost, men's soccer. I think the big, the very first match was was Egypt-Spain. And personally, again, I mentioned in the last episode, I'm from the Middle East and we got a rep. So I was, I'm always rooting for Egypt. And I was expecting a little bit of Mo Salah. But I didn't know this, and I don't know if you know this, but apparently... The Olympics is U23. Yes, I was not aware of that either. I actually just found out about that before we started recording. So um, it, it definitely changes my perspective on how I look at the games, knowing that it's a lot of younger players, even pretty similar in age to, to us. Exactly. The star player for Spain, uh, Pedri, he's our age. He's 18. And so really it gives a whole new meaning. You have your, your powerhouse countries like Spain, Argentina, that you expect to do well. And you can't really have those same expectations when they're when they're these U23 teams because these are players we've never seen before. But still, Spain was kind of the favorite. You know, Pedri, he played in the Euros. He dominated in the Euros. He plays for Barcelona. Spain has a load of other players. And you are allowed one to two players over 23. It's like an exception here for the Olympics. But that, that provides a kind of different aspect to things. What do you think about that? No, definitely. I completely agree with you. Well, what I love about it is that, you know, when you think about these teams like playing in the World Cup or in the Euros or, you know, whatever, um, you typically think like there are certain teams that are at like Spain's one of those teams, Brazil, Argentina, um, Germany, teams like those that are always making great runs at, at winning World Cups because they just have a very strong base of players. But when you move it down to just U23 with one or two other players, it completely changes the game and actually gives countries that maybe before like in the World Cup scene wouldn't be, you know, a favorite, uh, gives them a chance at making a really good run and even potentially winning the gold medal. So it's a nice change up that I think makes watching it a little more interesting than than watching the World Cup in which you kind of see the same teams winning year and year again. I completely agree. And you kind of see that here in the group stage. I think Egypt, New Zealand, uh, Ivory Coast, they're all teams you don't hear of really too much on the World Cup stage. And they've all made the quarterfinals here. And who knows? Like you said, maybe they'll make a run. But let's talk about that first game. It was a 0-0 draw between Egypt and Spain. And I mentioned we thought Mo Salah was going to be there. He was yeah. not. Liverpool blocked him from, from playing. And I, I'm going to be honest, I don't know the rules behind that. But I guess it makes sense from a, from a club perspective. But as a fan, you really hate to see that Mo Salah, one of the best players in the game. No, for sure. And I, and I think a parallel that I see to that is um, with the USA basketball team. There's a lot of like players that for their own health and safety are deciding not to go and play 
Um, maybe they're recovering from an injury or whatnot. But, you know, soccer clubs, which have these guys on contract and they're paying them lots and lots of money, don't want to risk them getting hurt, even though it's sad because they'd be playing for their country. Um, they, they don't want to risk them getting hurt and then, you know, losing them for the club season. So it makes sense, but it is it is sad to see. And as a fan, that just means we're going to have to wait until next year's World Cup, which is going to be fun regardless, where we see all these star players. But it gives us, like, we, like we've said, a little, bit, a little bit of a different perspective. And that first game, really, it was, it was Spain dominated, as expected, but they just couldn't put that first goal past Egypt, and they end up in a draw, ultimately factoring huge into this group, as we'll get in later. A couple other highlights – Ivory Coast gets a win, like you, like we mentioned. They were able to beat Saudi Arabia. Not too impressive, but hey, they got the job yeah, done. Exactly. And then Brazil wins a, a absolute stunner against Germany. It was a good game. I think Richarlison had a, a hat trick in 30 minutes in the first half. Wow. He went off, and the fourth goal came in the 95th minute. So it was a close game throughout. Really, it's not as dominant as four-two sounds. And. That's kind of the highlights of the first of the first match day. Mexico beating France four one, but again, that was most most of those goals came late, so it wasn't no big surprises, but also no too much domination in this round. Absolutely, and one more thing that I'd like to mention before we move on is the uh, Argentina Australia game, because yes. Argentina coming off you know winning the Copa and celebrating all of that ends up losing two zero in the first round to. You know, Australia, which, again, is one of those teams that I mentioned on the World Cup stage maybe isn't as dominant. But since they are, you know, only having, you know, U23 players on their team, it completely changes the whole landscape of of the competition and and allows for for, you know, almost upsets. You're absolutely upset. You're absolutely right. And for those of you that haven't been following too much, that's the power group. We mentioned Egypt and Spain. And the the other two teams in that group is Argentina and Australia. And so the four of them, a lot of experts before, they were saying, we expect Argentina and Spain, but Egypt could easily be a sleeper team. And Australia is not to be slept on either. Really, because it's U23, any of these four teams could come out. And many were saying whoever does come out has a good chance to make a run at that gold or, or bronze medal. So that's the end of match day one. Let's go to match day two where let's start let's start with this group again. We have Egypt, Argentina. This time it's kind of a flip of the Egypt Spain game. Egypt dominates this one. They had in the first 20 minutes, I think three or four chances to score a goal and they just missed. Okay. They dominate, but in the second half, Argentina nets one past them and the score is one-nothing. And now Egypt's kind of on the outside looking in. They get one point after two games, two games they hope to get more. Um it sucks for them, but that's just the way of the game sometimes. We did, however, see just a lot more goals overall in the, on this match day. Want to talk to us a little bit about the high-scoring games? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you see scores like, you know, France beating South Africa 4-3, to three, which especially for soccer is very high-scoring. Um, you also have Korea just absolutely dominating Romania um, with a 4-0 win. Uh, and, and especially, you know, in, in soccer and in games like that, Winning by like four or five points means you just dominated the game. Um, it's not a very a very high scoring sport, and so when you see scores like that, the team came out and was basically just full force from the get go. Usually, if you see that, it means it wasn't even close. Um, a four zero win means 
you know, you were dominant, you were crushing them, your possession was probably a lot higher. And there wasn't really any room for, oh, well, maybe it could have gone the other way if they would play again. It was it was very clear who the winner was. Yeah, and we certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, certainly had a lot more of that this round. And once we get to the women's game, you'll see there's a lot more high-scoring games and much more dominance on that side of things. But here in the middle, that's really, that's really the only goal. That's actually the only game that is won by more than a goal. So it's the only kind of dominant game here. Another score to note, Honduras beats New Zealand 3-2. And Japan, they're keeping it up. They were kind of favorites going in. Japan's always kind of sneaky good. You know, yeah. they have their... They have their way of playing soccer. They do well in the World Cup, never super well. They're always a threat, and they're showing that here in the U23, especially when we take a look at match day three in which Japan destroys France for nothing, and that means Japan ends the group stage 3-0. They're the only team to win all three games. They're looking dominant. Other than that, let's go back to our, our power group. This is where things really get interesting because before this, Egypt's on a point. Australia's on three, Argentina's on three, and Spain is on four. So it's still anybody could win the group. Anybody could make it to the next stage. And we had a couple upsets, first starting with Egypt-Australia. Egypt finally getting that elusive win. They beat Australia 2-0. And the reason that's big is because now Egypt's jumped Australian points. They go to four, Australia's at three. So now we're sitting there thinking, who knows, maybe Egypt can make it. And they ultimately do with a Spain and Argentina drawing 1-1. The powerhouses kind of just going at it. And as a result, Argentina loses out on a spot in the, in the knockout stage. That was such a big surprise. Yeah, no, that's, that's honestly unbelievable. And that's, that's the crazy thing. When, when you have a lot of ties in groups, um, it, can, it can flip the points. And, you know, a team like Egypt that really was not looking good through the first two days, they only had one point through two games with a win and a draw. Um, but they end up coming out. They, they know that if things go right, if they win that game and, and, you know, things work out well enough that they have a chance of making it on. So they went out and played as hard as they could. And bam, it got taken care of. They're moving on. Um, and good for them in such a hard group to, uh, to continue fighting uh, on. Absolutely. Spain ends the group with five points. Egypt and Argentina are tied with four. And it's kind of, it's kind of ironic that Egypt is the one that comes out, but they come out on goal differential. They're plus one. Argentina was minus one. Even though Argentina did beat Egypt, it didn't matter. And Egypt's the one that comes out of that group. The rest of the games, Korea dominates Honduras 6 nothing. That Korea's looking pretty tough. They're which, looking good as well. Which is, which is pretty crazy because that means, you know, in the, in the um, second and third day, you have, you know, them scoring 10 goals and having no goals scored against them. So that's, that's a plus 10 goal differential, which is – almost unheard of in professional soccer. You know, most of the teams are, or at least almost on the same playing level. So to show up and do that, to score 10 goals in two games and, and have their, you know, their keeper put up a shutout both games is, yeah. is pretty unbelievable. And especially, like we said, at the U23 level, these guys haven't really, you know, accelerated into the players they could become yet. So it's supposed to be much closer, but that's not what happens. Another big upset or... or Big differential, excuse me, Mexico beats South Africa 3-0. Mexico's another team that's looking strong. And, and the surprise of the group, Germany and Ivory Coast, they tie 1-1. That brings us, though, to the knockout stage. And there's a lot of things going on here. But there's really, we need, we need to look at a couple of things. First of all, Egypt is playing Brazil. 
So that's going to be a tough game. Talk about what you think that matchup is going to be real quick. Honestly, I would I would love to say to see uh, Egypt take the win. I'm definitely um, I find myself you know more prone to cheer for the underdog. I think I just like that story. Um, I like what Egypt did in their last game. I like how they came out and knew that they could have a chance of making it if they put up a good game, and they did. They you know they won two zero in that last game of the group stage, which was crucial. Um, I think Brazil's always got a solid team. You can never count them out. They're always making runs at anything soccer. Um, so I, I think it'll be a close game. I think it's definitely going to be a competition of of who wants it more. I think they both have very talented players on both teams. I, I would still say that Egypt is probably the underdog, like like you said, Ferris, kind of a sleeper. But if they come out with the right attitude and stay motivated and try and get a goal maybe in the first 20 minutes – to really set the pace, that could be huge. And that could that could be a momentum shift that takes them even beyond that quarterfinal game into the semifinals and maybe even into the finals, which would be really neat to see. Absolutely. And I think it comes down to Egypt's defense against Brazil's offense. You know, Brazil has Richarlison leading the attack. We mentioned he had a hat-trick earlier in the tournament. He's been super, super good. And Egypt's only given up one goal. And I don't want to call it a flute goal, but it was a goal they probably shouldn't have given up against Argentina. And really, they're playing like a defense of well-connected defensive team that's not going to let anything get past them. So that's what it comes down to. The winner of that game gets to take on the winner of, of dominant Korea. Like we said, 10 goals in their last yeah. two games against Mexico. That's going to be another fun one. Mexico doing well in the group stage. Both kind of... Again, not powerhouses, but they're not bad at soccer by any means. Yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited to see whether or not uh, South Korea's, you know, momentum carries on with them into those uh, elimination games. Scoring 10 goals in the group stage is awesome, but honestly, it didn't. They, they could have won all of those games 1-0, and it wouldn't have mattered. They still would have made it on. So although it's awesome that they were doing so well, they're going to have to keep that pace uh, because all it takes now is one game, and if they lose or they're off for one game and can't keep up that same pace, then then they're out. Uh, so I really think anything could happen in any of these games, but especially that game. Uh, it'll just, like I said, those first 20 minutes are crucial for seeing who can set the pace, who's going to take control of the game, and if they can do that early on like they have been doing, I think they have a good chance of winning and, and making it pretty far. I completely agree, and, and remember – if you win this quarterfinal matchup, three out of the four teams that win are going to get a medal. So this is really the game that everyone is, is going to put all their effort, all their heart into. Because after now, it's not by any stretch of the imagination going to be easy, but they'll likely get a medal. And that's a lot of teams will be happy with that, to be completely honest. Looking at the other side of the bracket, we have, again, the favorites, Spain, and, and they're absolutely you know, talented lineup against kind of an underdog, Ivory Coast. And we saw Ivory Coast, they drew Germany, you know, they drew Brazil, and they drew Brazil when they had 10 men. Both teams were down to 10 men in that game. Yeah. But at the end of the day, when you can tie two powerhouses in Brazil and Germany, and, and Spain hasn't looked great. Spain only had five points. They had a win and two ties, two draws. Yeah. Like, they're not destroying teams. This could be a good matchup, and Ivory Coast, it could play into their favor if Spain gets a little cocky. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I'm, I'm excited to see really with all of these games because I think the group stages for a lot of teams, even 
the big name teams was was shaky and so you know whoever comes out i think whoever has the heart and who can just get dialed in and be ready to attack from the get-go while also staying defensively strong and not giving up easy goals easy points is really going to be able to to make it far it's it's who who's going to come and who's going to want it more with these younger players it is so much about you know how much they can give and what they have left in the tank because they're, they're playing a lot of games. They're playing a lot of games, consecutive days. And that's not easy when you're tying and you're fighting until that last minute, trying to score goals, you're getting worn out. And so as much as these guys are in great shape, that stamina is going to be crucial to be able to keep playing at a high level over and over again, all the way until, you know, a medal, a medal match. And to your point, I mentioned Pedri earlier. I heard something crazy where he's played like 70 games in the past calendar year or something like that because he had a full season at Barcelona and then he had the Euros for Spain. He didn't really get a break. He maybe got a couple weeks off and then straight into the Olympics and he's participating in all of these. He's a big part of all of these teams. He's not getting any breaks out of all people in the world right now. He's probably one of the most exhausted and he can't let up. He's got a quarterfinal, maybe a semifinal. He's got to keep going as their star player. Who knows? Stamina is certainly a big part of, of the soccer scene as a whole, but of this tournament more specifically. And that kind of brings us to the last quarterfinal, which is the hosts Japan against New Zealand. And Japan has been the sneaky dominant team. They haven't lost yet. They're the only team at nine points. And none, none of the games have been, you know, blowouts except for that 4-0 finish. They won 2-1 and 1-0 in the first two rounds. Yeah. But New Zealand... I'm going to say I think Japan should beat them. I'm more comfortable with that over any of them. But again, no guarantees. New Zealand got here, and they they certainly looked scary at certain parts of the group stage. They could make an upset. Who knows? And you know what I think would be really interesting to see? I'm with you. I think Japan will probably end up taking that game, and that's the only one that I can say confidently. What I would be interested to see, because Japan is kind of a team that I would say is slept on, they, they played really well. I mean, you know, they won good games. Regardless, yeah. you're playing on the Olympic stage. If you're winning, you're doing things right. Exactly. And I think it would be interesting to see them paired up against uh, maybe even like Spain in the semi. Uh, because, you know, if that were to be the case, that would be super, super cool to have a team that's really, really good with a sleeper team. Uh, and you almost wonder if maybe Spain would like take them for granted. You know, that could that could be, you know, play to Japan's advantage, but because they are not seen as like this powerhouse yet, they have been winning. I think teams may underestimate them. And because of that, they have a chance at making it far. And keep in mind, they're the host. It's in Japan. They got that added motivation and like, that's enough when you're on your home soil to bring a, a gold medal to your country. It's going to mean a lot to them. Oh yeah. It's going to mean a lot. And if, if they win and Spain win, that's going to be a great semifinal. And even if Spain lose, I think if Ivory Coast manages to upset Spain, a Japan-Ivory Coast semifinal wouldn't be too bad either. Another sleeper team kind of with Ivory Coast maybe making a run up against the host. That'll be a fun storyline. But who knows? Oh, I, I think that would, be, that would be sweet. I would love to just see the semifinals stacked with like Korea, uh, Egypt, Japan and Ivory Coast would be so cool because none of those teams are really known for soccer. So having like a semifinal so that no matter what, you're like someone who's bringing home the gold medal is doing something that usually is not done with regards to soccer. Uh, I think that would be really cool. 
Yep, absolutely. Um, let's move on to the women's tournament now. We mentioned a little earlier, this was kind of a lot more domination throughout. There were some big games, some big upsets as well. But this is, this is going to be, I think, a lot. It's going to be fun to talk about because we also have a stake in this as, as living in America, fans exactly. of Team USA. We have a lot to root for. And, you know, the U.S., they're kind of the dominant team in women's soccer. They won the World Cup most recently. And they kind of crashed out of the last Olympics in a penalty kick uh, shootout against Sweden. And they get a chance here in game one to avenge that loss. And, John, tell us about what they did. Well, unfortunately, it did not go too well for the United <laughs> States women's team. Uh, they ended up losing 3-0 to zero, uh, to Sweden, which has got to be pretty demoralizing for them. You know, losing in a PK shootout, coming back, wanting that vengeance, and then really falling short. Uh, even, like, as that first game in the Olympics, that's that's your tone. That's where you're setting your tone. And going down 3-0 is... It is, like I said, pretty demoralizing. So, unfortunately, I don't, I don't think that was the turnout that the U.S. women's soccer team wanted. Fortunately, they were able to come back in the next couple rounds, play some solid games, and actually end up advancing to the quarterfinals, in which they played a pretty crazy match and that we'll talk about later. But overall, that was not the start that I think they really wanted. It was absolutely not the start. And, and they, it's not just that they lost 3-0. It's that they got outplayed. They didn't look like the best team in the world. And Sweden did. And it sucks to say, but that's the truth. But like you said, we've got some more games to talk about the U.S. later. Let's focus on the rest of this first round. And one thing we kind of noticed going over these games, what we realized is in women's soccer, it's kind of different from men's soccer in that every team seems to have one huge star in women's soccer. And that star goes off every game, scores a, a load of goals, but it's the teams that can play well around that that tend to do well. And... That's certainly true of Great Britain, as Ellen White is that as that woman for Great Britain. She scores two against Chile. They win two nothing. Brazil is kind of the only exception. They have a couple players, but they win five nothing against China. They get the job done. And kind of the big game in this group stage in this match day is Netherlands Zambia, and there were thirteen goals scored. John mentioned earlier, if you win by four goals, that's a blowout. That's a great game. The Netherlands won by seven, and they scored 10. How do you do that in a soccer game, score 10 goals? I know. That's pretty unbelievable. I mean, I think if you if you break down the numbers, because obviously this game did not go into extra time, but they were averaging scoring a goal every nine minutes, Yeah, you know, which is, is almost unheard of in soccer. Scoring that many goals in, in 90 minutes is, is unbelievable. I think what's interesting, too, is usually when you see – a big blowout, a team like scoring 10 goals and winning by crazy, they usually almost have a shutout. Normally you're seeing 10-0, 10-1, maybe 10-2. I do find it a little interesting that they ended up giving up three goals though. Uh, that's, it's, yeah, like I said, it's just, it's unexpected. You, you usually see a, a defensive shutout and just an offensive explosion. But in this case, it wasn't bad, but their defense clearly did start to lack a little bit uh, giving up those three goals. I mean, I totally understand your point. Only two other teams scored three goals besides these two. And that was Sweden destroying us and that was Brazil destroying China. So three goals isn't something you come by every game. It's hard to do. And to give up three goals, I'm sure they were happy with the 10 goals on offense, but that would have hurt, especially since it was Zambia's star player. I think her name is Banda. 
she scored a hat trick against them. Yeah, and, and I, we were talking about that actually before we started recording, which I just thought was crazy because I believe in some later games too, you know, she was responsible for scoring a majority of the goals, if not having more hat tricks, uh, which is which is interesting. You know, you think coming into the Olympics on the biggest stage, almost everyone would be equal, but we kind of see, and, and this is not just Zambia, there are some dominant players on each team. Um, I believe there's the girl from Australia too. Yeah, Sam Kerr. Yeah, Sam Kerr, who like has also just been scoring hat tricks. And so you see these players that are just really stepping up and for whatever reason, scoring goal after goal after goal, putting up hat tricks, which is an incredible feat in soccer on one of the biggest stages in the Olympics. And they're doing it again and again. To John's point, Sam Kerr, she scored a goal and an assist in a 2-1 game over New Zealand. In the Netherlands' 10-goal output, their star player, Mia Dama, she scored a hat-trick. Just players left and right scoring hat-tricks. And that'll bring us to match day two, where Zambia's star player, Banda, scores another hat-trick, this time in a 4-4 tie against China. It's kind of, it's, it's I want to say, disheartening almost a little bit. Seeing a team like Zambia, not you never heard of them on the soccer stage at all. They're out here putting seven goals in two games, but they can't win either of them. Their defense just not keeping up. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, you know, scoring scoring that many goals in almost any other place is, like, unheard of. You know, especially for a team like Zambia, who, you're right, doesn't have the soccer clout that a lot of these other, you know, countries have. Um, yeah, it's 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 sad that, that that kind of effort and that kind of goal scoring can't pull through, especially, you know, for their player who was consistently scoring hat tricks. You know, exactly. scoring goal after goal after goal. And for her seeing, I'm doing everything I can for this team. And it's just, for some reason, not enough. You know, sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you get unlucky. One other thing that I'll actually say about that game, too, is on the first day, um, China was also blown out by Brazil. That was a 5-0 game. Um, so not as bad as the 10-3 loss, only losing by five goals. But still, we've, we've you know, we've said it time and time again. 5-0 is a blowout. That's not even absolutely. a close game. It's absolute domination. So both these teams went from being absolutely blown out and were still able to score goal after goal. So in that way, it makes me feel happy that at least it wasn't a 0-0 shutout. You know, absolutely. there were players turning chances into, you know, real goals that gave their team a chance to win and actually kept the game close. A 4-4 draw is, it's a, is a very interesting game to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, as a soccer fan, you enjoy sitting and watching those types of games. We had another one with Netherlands-Brazil. Both of these are kind of the other side of the group. They, they destroyed both the, both China and Zambia. They went off to a 3-3 tie. So it goes all around uh, from all sides. We mentioned Sam Curl earlier. She scored another two here in this round against Sweden. But Sweden, they keep up their hot run of form 4-2 against Australia. They win that game, and that sets up an interesting kind of last match of the group stage, the U.S. against New Zealand. Tell us a little bit about that. So, yeah, um, the U.S. actually ended up, like, like we mentioned, you know, having a very rough start against Sweden, but came back with a vengeance and fought crazy hard in the rest of their games. Um, that, that second game coming back, winning 6-1, to one, you know, an absolute blowout against New Zealand. So, you know, as a U.S. soccer fan and in wanting to see our women's team do well, that was almost kind of that brought the life back into me. Yeah. When I saw that first zero to three, you know, starting off on that kind of leg, you're a little bit worried about that if things aren't fixed fast, that could be it. That could be it for the run. But coming back six one, 
scoring that many times, being dominant. And, and it's, from what I remember, it was not a close game. It was very, no. it was U.S. dominated for all 90 minutes that they played. Uh, yeah. It, and, and as a fan of, of just U.S. Olympics in general, it is kind of just, oh, we're, here we go again. You know, the men's basketball team, they lost their first match. Ah, oh, here we go again. You know, the swimming, they didn't get off to the start that they wanted. Everyone's kind of starting weekly. And so to see a team turn it around against a respectable opponent in New Zealand and win 6-1, you know, there's maybe some hope, like you said. And that brings us to match day three. And to kind of give you a picture of everything, in, in the U.S.'s group, you have Sweden at six points, you have the U.S. and Australia at three, and you have New Zealand at zero. And so essentially what that means is whoever wins this U.S.-Australia match is guaranteed to go into the group stage, and the loser has to hope to be one of the best third-place teams. And so it's a, it's a big game, and I'm going to be honest, both of them kind of disappointed at 0-0 draw. Yeah, it, it certainly was not the finish that I think I, as a soccer fan, was hoping for. Um, I really wanted to see that same momentum that went into that 6-1 win against New Zealand carried over into the Australia game, and they just couldn't get any goals to land. Um, it was yeah, – 0-0 you know, in soccer is is a very tough score to watch, you know. Absolutely. It's not a very entertaining game, and especially as a fan who's who's actively hoping for their team to do well, seeing a 0-0 draw is kind of like, wow, you know, it's – this team, this ride through the Olympics has kind of been full of highs and lows, and – you know, that dropped us down to a bit of a lower note. Thankfully, this uh, the quarterfinal match this morning was was a lot better. But Absolutely. And I kind of the, the one thing that stayed constant between these two games, the quarterfinal match and, and, and this third match day, the U.S. could not figure out how to stay onside. In, in this game against Australia, the reason they couldn't score is because they ran offside so much they couldn't get the ball deep. They were they were not playing good soccer, and we saw that again today against the Netherlands. But, hey, we'll get to that in a bit. Let's finish with the group stage. Sweden finishes the job. They finish at nine points. They beat uh, New Zealand 2-0. And then the Netherlands comes back. They scored 10 goals in their first game. They scored three goals in their second game, and now they score eight here in their third game. And I think Mia Dema has another crazy game. She had eight goals across these three games. The team as a whole had 21. That's just that's just offensive output at its finest. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's unbelievable. 21 goals in three games, averaging seven goals a game. Just almost unheard of in professional soccer. At this stage, you almost never see games like that. So for a team to come with that much fire, it almost – Reminds me back to Korea on the men's side yeah. and how dominant they've been. But even even that Korea team still hasn't even been close to having the offensive output that this um, women's Netherlands team has had. So. It's, it's 10 goals in, in two games for Korea, whereas it was 18 goals in two games for the Netherlands. It's absolutely crazy. But now we get to have some fun. We get to talk about the group stage or the, the knockout stage, the quarterfinals that happened this morning. And... Let's talk about the first game, Canada-Brazil. Kind of boring. 0-0 draw, and I went to PKs. What do you think about that game? Yes. So, again, like I said, as a soccer fan, 0-0 is one of the most yeah. disheartening scores to see. Um, both teams are fighting hard, and they really just want to win the game because, unfortunately, although you have you get to a point where you have to have some kind of deciding factor, I really don't like when goals go to PKs yeah, or when games either. go to PKs, excuse me, because – you know, you see these teams fighting for the win, and in PKs, it's kind of the only instance where 
you know, the, the winner of the game, the better team is being determined by how many times you can score. And it puts way too much emphasis, in my opinion, on the keeper. Because yeah. although the keeper definitely does play a huge role throughout the game, they're almost everything in a PK shootout. And it puts a lot of pressure on them. And so the better team, if they can't produce offensively during the, the you know, most of the game, it ends up 0-0, and they lose in a PK shootout, that's just really, really hard to see. And we saw that several times throughout the Euros, for example, where it was Italy, Spain, and Spain dominated that game, but Italy won in PKs. And, and even the finals, England, Italy, that was a pretty close game, but it sucks to win a finals on, on PKs. And that's, it's unfortunately just kind of a part of the sport. You have to deal with it. But I think most fans would rather just the game finish in, in ex- Extra time even. Let it go to extra time. But yeah. the fact that they couldn't score in 120 minutes, unfortunate. Canada does upset Spain, I would call it an upset. Or upset Brazil, excuse me. Uh, and they make it to the semifinals. But, again, 0-0. Which brings us, this is the kind of game you want to watch if you're a soccer fan. We mentioned Great Britain has star player Ellen White. And, and Australia has star, star player Sam Kerr. It's 2-1 in the 89th minute. And in the, in the last minute... Sam Kerr scores to tie the game, sending it to extra time. And then what a crazy extra time. Three goals in extra time. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Yeah, which was unbelievable. Um, you know, tying things up and then all of a sudden, you know, moving in. I, I think you told me that the last goal was scored in the 95th minute. Something like that. Or, you know, something unbelievable. So, um, yeah, I just to, – to see games end like that, it almost reminds me back. And this is this is really drawing way back, but – Almost 10 years ago, I remember I was watching the English Premier League and Manchester United and Manchester City were neck and neck um, at the end of the season. And, you know, one team was going to win it all. Uh, Manchester United thought that they had it locked up or at least thought that they had a tie locked up. But Man City ended up scoring two goals to win their last game four to two. Oh, wow. In extra time, you know, in stoppage time and ended up actually winning the Premier League which was unbelievable. I mean, I saw that and I was like so blown away. And you know, those fans were going crazy. So anytime you have a game on a big stage, you know, the Olympics or whatever else, that there's a lot of goals scored in the last couple minutes. Um, A, it makes it really exciting. And, you know, B, it can be very hit or miss for teams. Absolutely. Like you said, they, they score the equalizer in stoppage time, Sam Kerr. She has a second goal, another one in extra time. She continues her dominant run of form. And on the other side, again, Great Britain star player producing. She has the hat trick, but it's not enough. The final score is 4-3 Australia. And here we go. Australia, part of U.S.'s group, and they're on the semifinals. So let's see how the rest of U.S.'s group can do. We have Sweden now against Japan. And I'm going to be honest, Sweden has looked unstoppable. They beat the U.S. 3-0. They beat Australia by 4-2, I think. They beat New Zealand 2-0. They beat, here we go, Japan 3-1. They haven't won a game by less than two goals. They're just on a dominant run of form. Which is, yeah. You know, obviously, you as a soccer fan, you have respect for good teams. And so even though I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a Sweden fan, I do have respect for the way that they're playing. And I think that if they keep this up, there's really nothing stopping them from getting that gold. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see how they face off with the U.S. in the semifinals, which we haven't actually talked about that quarterfinal game yet. But um, 
Actually, Sweden gets Australia. Oh, they get in Australia. The semifinals. So if we face them, it's going to be in the in finals. In the finals. But, You're right. John, a little bit of a spoiler there. We did beat the Netherlands, but don't go away just yet. That was one heck of a game. 2 2. It ended in penalty kicks as well. So that's a little bit unfortunate. But I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm so happy the U.S. was able to come away because watching the game, they deserved to come away with it. They had, what, four or five goals taken away oh, from yeah. offsides? For offsides calls. And even, I think, two of those goals were at the very end of the game. I mean, you're looking like 80th, 90th minute stoppage time. They had, you know, great balls that were played through. And they – I mean, you know, it was very clearly a goal. But from the looks of it, they were offsides every single time. And, you know, you think from, from a coaching standpoint that – Maybe they would address that after it had happened once or twice to not let it happen again. But unfortunately, they just couldn't figure it out. You know, they kept having these goals called back and called back, and they were they were able to pull it off in, in penalties. But really, I think after that game, talking going to the semifinals, I'm sure their coach is, you know, really hammering down the let's make sure we're staying on sides because a foot or two could be the difference between scoring the game-winning goal and having it called back and, you know, losing the next game in PKs or yes, whatever yeah, may course. happen. And and again, this was this is not a new problem. This was a problem in the New Zealand game as well, which is or excuse me, the Australia game. But that's unfortunate because this is not the US team that we know to be so dominant. They won the World Cup without really breaking a sweat. They didn't look to be threatened too much throughout that tournament. And that's super hard to do unless you're the best team in the world. And they looked like it up until here, but Another thing to point out, this game could have easily been 7-6. We mentioned the offsides, but the offsides happened for the Netherlands too. There were a couple goals called back. And there was also some absolutely spectacular saves that really there was no defense in this game. It was just an offensive attack by both sides. Oh, yeah. You have you have that PK late, late into the game, I want to say, you know, in the 80-somethingth minute with, you know, our keeper coming up with just an unbelievable save. And – you know, I've I've been in the goal before. I've had to try and stop PKs. Let me tell you, it's not easy. The score was 2-2, right? So if, if the keeper gives up that goal, the U.S. is out. They don't win the game. And, and she's able to stop a penalty in the 80th minute and stop two more in PKs. She's, she's the reason they're moving on, even though ultimately it was a much more offensive attack game, which kind of brings us – we mentioned the one semifinal matchup, Sweden-Australia. That's going to be a fun one. They've already played here in the Olympics with 4-2 Sweden. So who knows if Australia and Sam Kerr can maybe, you know, turn it around and, and surprise Sweden. But the other one, U.S.-Canada. And neither team has looked dominant. Neither team has looked bad. But I don't – history says the U.S. is going to win. I don't know if the Olympics says the U.S. is going to win. I, I completely agree with you. I'd say – I would still consider the U.S. to be the favorite, but kind of like the theme of this entire conversation has been with Olympic soccer and, you know, the way that, that things are and even just, you know, in light of, of injuries and the pandemic and everything, honestly, I would say anything is possible here. So as, as likely as I, you know, think that a U.S.-Sweden final is, anything is possible. Absolutely. And if that is the case, there, you, that's your third chance. You lost to them in the last Olympics and PKs. You got your revenge game and you got blown out. You get a second chance at a revenge game. That doesn't happen very often, especially not in the finals. Who knows? We might even face them in the third third place game. It, 
it's just a matter of what happens. Exactly. And, you know, as, as a U.S. soccer fan, I think we're both hoping they're in the, the charm. Hopefully, hopefully. Hopefully in the finals and hopefully the, the third time will be the charm. Absolutely. With that being said, that's it for soccer. But let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about some other big kind of U.S. sports. And uh, what comes to mind for me is swimming. We have 24 medals in 25 events. 24 out of 75 is not bad, especially when there's been five or six team events and we've got three medals in those. You can't win all the medals there. They've been looking good. They've been looking pretty dominant, but you hope for more, uh, especially there's been there's been some disappointment. They have six golds, nine silvers, nine bronzes. You'd hope a couple more golds out of the bunch. Mm-hmm. But there's been some, some pretty good stories. Why don't you tell us about... Uh, the, the Alaskan, excuse me. Yes, and, and I'm actually not totally familiar with her name. However, Lydia Jacobs. Lydia Jacobs, thank you, yes. Um, so so Lydia, who is, is from Alaska, and from what I've heard, I mean, just based off of pure assumption, but also hearing from, from other places, there's not a lot of access to, you know, Olympic-sized swimming pools for her to train in. She's not getting the same kind of preparation that a lot of these other athletes are, at least in the early stages. You know, I, I assume that once she was on the team, she's had training, you know, in, in Olympic-sized pools. But, um, you know, being a 17-year-old, growing up in Alaska, learning to swim on her own or, you know, with the resources that she has so far away from the mainland United States mm-hmm. um, is, is unbelievable. And I actually heard, too, that she's going to be attending the University of Texas next year in Austin. Oh, wow. So it's it's interesting to know that some of these kids that are competing, um, I know, you know, Ferris, I, I am a student at the University of Southern California and Ferris at Stanford. We have a lot of our colleagues that are in our grade or even younger than us that are in Tokyo right now competing. So knowing that there are, are kids, not only her age, but, you know, for her specifically being from somewhere so isolated, it's just crazy that she can show up and, you know, place in on the world stage against the best athletes in the world at what is, you know, known as the biggest stage for, for swimmers, especially the Olympics are huge. And like we said, she's only 17 years old. She made it to, to this finals and people were happy. They're like, she might make a run at bronze, but honestly good enough for her. She still has her entire future ahead of her. And she, she's like, I'm not going to settle for bronze. She goes out, wins gold. And to be able to do it with her teammate, Lily King, getting bronze, kind of that one-three combo for the U.S., that must have felt good. And that's not really – that's not the only combo here for the U.S. The very first race, you have the U.S. getting one-two. Chase Collish and and Jay Litherland, one-two in the men's 400-meter final. And then in the women's 400 um, Edley, you have two-three. Emma Lyon and, and Hal Flickinger. So they're certainly capable of, of, of placing on the podium, the U.S. is. So the, and the fact that they've been able to do it, but not really at the rate they wanted, and I think someone we, we can mention is, is Katie Ledecky, one of the best swimmers of all time, especially oh, yeah. women. But she gets a gold in her event, in her one of her events, destroys the field by four seconds. But she has two other event, events that she's finished. She got second and one. Losing to an Australian. I think her name is like Ari Army or something like mm-hmm. that. And then in her third event, she got fifth, which is re- it's just not the quality that she would have wanted from herself. To, to be a swimmer of that caliber and to set such high expectations for yourself, it is, it's really hard to come up short in that way, especially placing fifth in something that you really thought that you should be on the podium for. 
um, is, is crazy difficult. And so, you know, at the end of the day, she is going to be going home with two medals. And I think she has another event too, the 800. She has, I think a couple more, but yeah, yeah. she, she so, already has so, two medals. So, so plenty of events to go. Um, and she's dominant in a lot of those events too. It's by no means a failure of an Olympics. It's, she did really well and she's doing well. I just think knowing her and, and American swimming, they would have hoped for a little better. Exactly. And, and I, I completely see what you're saying. Um, and I agree. Another thing about swimming that I'll mention kind of shifting here um, that, that has been kind of weird for me watching. Um, I, I swam for a while when I was younger. I, I don't anymore. And I wasn't crazy, crazy competitive with it, but my sort of, athlete that I looked up to for, for most of my youth was Michael Phelps. Um, and even, even, uh, Ryan Lochte and, you know, you don't see either of those guys around anymore. No, they're not swimming. They're not competing. And so this being the first Olympics, you know, without Michael Phelps, who's, you know, basically considered to be one of the best male swimmers of all time, if not the greatest male swimmer of all time, the number of medals that that guy has and how dominant he was every race you could turn on. And it felt like he was winning. So not seeing him competing anymore has definitely made this Olympics a bit different than, than the rest. A bit different. Uh, I completely agree. But it's good to see we do have some people filling in his shoes. Now, it's taken a couple people to kind of fill in, in, in all the events that he was so dominant in. But one of these guys, for example, Caleb Dressel. Caleb already won a gold medal. Yesterday, he, in the semifinals of an event, broke the Olympic record and he gets to race for gold tonight. So he has a good chance there. So we certainly have the star caliber swimmers, maybe not anyone as dominant as Michael Phelps, but U.S. swimming, I think after these Olympics, is still going to be considered one of the best in the world. Oh, absolutely. It's a a great program and they're so young. You mentioned Reagan Smith. She has a silver and a bronze. She's in the uh, class of 25 at Stanford. She just graduated high school. And I know a, a ton of people like her and on this Olympic swimming team. They're all so young. There's a great future ahead of them. And I'm excited. Yeah. No, I, I do think it's incredible coming back to it just one more time. I mean, you look and I think it's like USC bringing like 63 Olympic athletes, Stanford yeah. 57 or something around those numbers. Having these college kids, you know, kids that you and I could show up and be in, you know, Calc 101 with or yeah. whatever. Um, it's, it's just unbelievable that there, there are kids our age that are accomplishing these, these physical feats that are on par with, you know, honestly, the Olympics is, is one of the highest athletic competitions. One of, you know, placing at the Olympics is one of the highest honors you can get. And so doing that while also being a full-time student at, at awesome schools is, is crazy. I completely agree. And to think she, like, for example, the student in the year below me, she's going to go to another Olympics before she's even graduated. And these these people, they have their entire future ahead of them. The U.S. is in good hands. And really, that's U.S. swimming in a nutshell. There's always going to be up-and-coming swimmers. I think that's why the U.S. is one of the best, especially in the Summer Olympics year in, year out. But there's a a bright future, and I'm here for it, honestly. I am, too. With that being said, let's move on to our last little segment. And I want to talk a little bit about the track and field that's going on here in the Olympics started yesterday. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. And so moving on to, to track and field and looking at the, some of the athletes competing, um, 
I actually have a bit of a personal connection to the 800 meter race. Uh, two of the three Olympians who are competing, Clayton Murphy and uh, Bryce Hopple, I actually have been lucky enough to meet before. I wouldn't exactly say I'm like a close acquaintance of them. But I, I first met Clayton Murphy back, goodness, in 2017, I went to a cross country event up in South Dakota and he was one of the speakers. That was after his um, third place medal in the 2016 Olympics that uh, he brought home. And so meeting him was super cool, you know, being able to take a picture with an Olympian. And then now the up and coming Bryce Hopple, who has really in the last couple of years emerged as dominant on the world stage. He actually ran at the University of Kansas, which is only about 45 minutes from our homes here in Kansas City, uh, Kansas City, Kansas. Yeah. Uh, and I, I even got the chance to watch him race back when he was in college at KU. And it was very clear that he was a dominant athlete. I mean, the guy would go out whether it was cross country, whether it was track. And he really specialized in that 800. That's like been his event. Uh, but watching him run was just so cool. I mean, the guy was fast. His form was clean. He's, you know, just a very respectable athlete, but also a great guy. He would, you know, he would talk to people. He didn't think that he was better than everyone else. And so I always have a lot of respect for the athletes who are humbled and who are just willing to teach and talk and take pictures and use their fame and their talent to help other people, maybe, you know, and, and, and helping other people, I just mean, you know, being kind to other people and, Absolutely. you know, maybe providing tips or, you know, his tactics, his previous routine, whatever it may be. Um, you love to see that. And so I'm definitely rooting for those two guys in the 800. I think they're in different heats. Um, mm -hmm. I want to say Bryce Hopple is actually in the sixth heat. He's in the fastest heat. Uh, and then Clayton Murphy's in the third heat, but Seeing either of those guys compete, I, I hope that they make it on uh, to the finals and then can eventually, you know, run a good enough time so that they make it on the podium. And I hope so too. You and know, having a having a KU alum end up with a medal would be would be pretty sweet. Absolutely, and, and we talk kind of casually about how Stanford and USC kind of we have fifty plus athletes each. That's not very common, and we're very fortunate to go oh, to schools yeah. that are able to do that. Seeing someone from KU, it's much smaller school in, in terms of, of this impact on the Olympic level, at least. And, and it's nice to be able to, you know, grow up around the area and, and see people that, you know, John knows, and you've definitely, you can come across, run, run into here in the area and, and they're succeeding on such a, a large stage. I think we mentioned they're seventh and 11th respectively in the world, world rankings in the 800 meters. They're both really, really good. And the fact that they're able to stay kind and stay humble, it's not something you can take for granted. And it certainly uh, a, m makes me happy to hear and it, a testament to how good both of these guys are as, as humans. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think another really cool thing about being from Kansas City, because we don't have a ton of people who go, you kind of have the whole community that rallies around you. I mean, you see the way that Kansas City rallies around the Chiefs. Absolutely. Um, so anytime we're sending guys, girls, whoever it may be to the Olympics, you can always count on that, especially in a smaller city relative to most of the United States. Yeah. I mean, you most know. Olympians are going to come from Florida, California, Texas, New York. You don't have too many from out here in Kansas. Um, so, so yeah, getting to see them compete and getting to see the community kind of rally around behind them, I think is super, super cool. Uh, another thing, you know, moving on past the 800 meter, I believe the, uh, the track events are really just starting just yeah. starting now, um, yeah. there hasn't been a ton that's been going on with them. But um, the men's 10,000 meter mm -hmm. 
happened, um, which was interesting. Um, And you see, you know, just kind of domination. Unfortunately, the U.S. wasn't as close in in those events. I Um, think we we didn't do too bad. We got fifth or sixth, but yeah, it's it's the kind it's the countries that tend to dominate in running. You had, I think, Uganda winning it in Ethiopia. It's Ethiopia getting both second and third. Uh, both those countries kind of specialize in running events. You don't really exactly, see and, and those guys are just incredible. I mean, if you even look at the way that they live there, as far as like how their life is built around running, they'll wake up and it's like all they do is run, and they they run, they eat, and they sleep. Yeah. And it's it's no surprise that those guys are the best in the world. I mean, the culture, the running culture that they have there is something that I've always admired so much because it is like it is their life and they they are so good at, at like perfecting it. Like it's almost like it's an art to them and they know what they're doing. So props to those countries, I'd say very well deserved. And absolutely, I think they will continue to be dominant as long as they continue with the programs that they have. Because they are just, yeah, they're unstoppable. They're unbelievable. And there's the reason these countries are winning the the same races every Olympics. They're, it's like you said, the culture. Along the same lines, I have, I have a question, you know, as a runner, what does it take? You, you mentioned a little bit about these guys' lifestyles who have to run the 10K. But what does it take for someone like Hopple or Murphy? It's 800 meters, not a long race. It's a relatively short race compared to all these other ones. So how, what does it take to be such a good runner at that level? Which it's really interesting because you mentioned like it's not long of a race. Um, I'll say it's it's the longest two, three minutes of your life when you're running it. Uh, okay. it is, and, and I mean, for those guys, like a minute and 40 something seconds. It is an extremely painful race. I would even say it's one of the hardest races in track because with a, four, a 400 is also very difficult because it's an all out sprint for a whole lap. Um, and, and maintaining that pace can be really, really hard. But the 800 is a very awkward middle ground, at least with the mile, the two mile, the 5K, the 10K, you know, you're able to get set into a pace and you can chill. The 800, you can never really get set in and comfortable at a pace or you're going to lose. People are going to pass you because the race is just too short for that. But it's also too fast to just sprint all out the entire time. You have to have a strategy. You have to go in with the pace. And so I apologize. I'm going on a bit of a tangent because I know you asked about the lifestyle. <laughs> it's okay. But, it's okay. But that takes a lot of mental preparation and training. And so I know that a lot of those guys will do, you know, they, they have a lot of talks with like psychologists, like they'll have like oh, wow. psychologists um, that they work with and, and work on, you know, getting mentally stronger. And, and they, they work with their coaches um, on race planning. You know, they'll have it down to like at this point on the curve is when I'm going to make the move or I'm going to start off and I want my pace through my first 150 meters to be this. I mean, they break it down like meter to meter, what they want to be doing, where they want to be and what place they want to be, who they want to be around with. So there's actually a lot of planning that goes in that way too. Um, they're of course living very healthy lifestyles, you of know, course. they're eating great food, um, which I feel like with any athlete, that's kind of the case, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're competing in something that's requiring your entire body. Yeah. Energy um, just it's exert for sure. So, so yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, they're, they're obviously not going out and partying or anything. They're no. eating, they're eating pretty healthy. Um, and, and yeah, they're spending a lot of time going over strategy, not overthinking it, but working with psychologists. And then of course running, you know, the best way to get, to get good at running is, is by running. So absolutely, it's a different training plan. They don't put in as many miles. Um, they focus a little more on speed work than those 10 K guys do, mm-hmm. but on the whole, really anyone who's 
I would even just say competing in track and field or swimming in general has like a very similar routine with what they eat, what they focus on psychologically, how they are like getting in the mindset because it is such a mental thing. It's, it's you against yourself trying Absolutely. to push through. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my rundown on, on what I think goes into the Olympic training from what I've heard from <laughs> Olympians like, um, like oh gosh, Hopple uh, and, and Murphy. Yeah, Hopple and, and Murphy. Yeah, Murphy specifically because I, uh, I got to listen to him talk at the event. But well, that is that is very interesting. Thank you so much, John, for your perspective. It's been great having you on the show. I've had a, a blast with you here. Definitely something I'm not really accustomed to to learning about. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you having me, and uh, I enjoyed getting to talk soccer, swimming, and and running with you, especially running, you know, just because I have a closer connection <laughs> with that. So, yeah, man, I really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck moving on. Absolutely. Your episodes. I appreciate it. I appreciate the support from, from you, John, and from all the listeners at home. If you're listening right now, please tune in this weekend. I have a special episode. The baseball trade deadline ends today at 5 p.m. We've already had a couple really big trades to break down. I'm going to have a friend on the show with me to break them down, and it's going to be a really good episode. Please tune in this weekend. With that being said, this is Ferris Bader. I had with me John Price today here on Fair Game with Ferris. Thank you.